Welcome to Skeptex, the weekly show where we talk about research, tech news and politics. I'm Nayana. And I'm Josh. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined today uh, by two uh, members of the Bennett Institute for Applied Data Science here in Oxford. Uh, ben Goldegger, who's the director of the Institute, and Nick DeVito, who's a researcher here as well. Uh, thanks so much to both of you for, for joining uh, the show. It's really exciting to have you on. I think a good place to start might be to just talk about where we are, the building we're in, and the kind of institute uh, that the building houses. Oh! Ah, okay. Well, this is the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences building, which is the old Royal Infirmary, beautiful, ancient, lovely hospital building. There are pictures of it, actually, and there's footage on uh, British Film Institute archives of when it was wards. And the pictures of wards are really peculiar to look at now because they're just beds in a room. Mm. And it takes you a while until you go, oh, I know why this looks weird for a hospital. There's no machines and no drip stands <laughs> there's just some people lying down <laughs> that's it um and we are the Bennett Institute which um is I guess my group in Oxford and there's uh, 40 or 50 of us depending on how you count secondments from the NHS and NICE and places like that um and we are a bit different to traditional academic research groups is that fair I think absolutely. <laughs> um, the looks I get when I describe our, our uh, makeup. So we're, we're different in three ways. Um, first of all, our interests. So we don't just take large health data sets and turn them into traditional academic research papers. Mm. We also build tools and services and platforms like Open Safely, which make it easy for everyone to work with health data. Secondly, we're really interested in practical uses of data for service monitoring and improvement. That's something which researchers used to get involved in a lot, but there's a sort of really unhealthy snobbery around that kind of practical use of data in academia often today. But um, as somebody who uses the techniques and resources and tools of epidemiology to do both epidemiology papers and service monitoring and improvement, I can tell you, the second is much harder and mm. more interesting and more challenging and more rewarding than cranking out uh, an epi paper. And then lastly, because of those differences of focus, we're also quite an odd makeup. Yeah, so, you know, um, that 40 or 50 people that Ben talked about really kind of fits into three groups. You have your, um, and some people cross between groups, and that's part of the magic of what we do. Mm. But you have uh, really a software engineering group, a tech group, that, I mean, at this point, we're operating in about like a small startup's worth mm. of professional mm-hmm. software engineers. And these are not like generally not academics. These are people with professional, like private sector experience in, in commercial, in commercial yeah. software development. They're not the statistician in your group who's weirdly good at R and Python. Yeah. They're people who spent 10 or 20 years running the entire back end of a global retail outfit. Sure. And then we teach them about electronic health records and epidemiology. Exactly. And then you have um, people, kind of a broad group of clinical expertise, which, you know, Ben is a, Ben's a doctor. We have um, other doctors that we work with, GPs uh, in the group. Also pharmacists, I would group in there as well. We have quite a few pharmacists throughout the group because we focus a lot on prescribing data. And um, those people come with the added benefit of often being very knowledgeable about the with the NHS functions mm-hmm. in general and so, some of that, which uh, sort of bleeds into the third area, which is probably the one, which is definitely the one I fall into, which is like sort of content and research expertise, which are our epidemiologists, mm-hmm. our statisticians. Um, I work in sort of 
health policy, dabble in epi and things like that as mm-hmm. well. So um, having specific expertise in an area that then you can tell the 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 software engineers what you need, talk through with them, teach each other. You know, they can say, oh, hey, you can analyze or store or, you know, format your code. Have you heard about this tool that does this thing that you're trying to do? And then we can be like, oh, you know, they organize medicines this way. And this is how people talk about medicines. And we want to research medicines. How can we transit, transfer that into a working database that we can query or design research around? And I think the really critical thing there is that... Um, People have always worked with software developers in research and um, very recently in the last 10 years there has been a, a, a brand attached to it, research software engineering. Um, but in a lot of cases it's been framed as the researcher gives a kind of set of requirements to the software developer team, mm-hmm. whereas we don't work like that. We have um, people truly pooling skills and knowledge, first of all, so our researchers now they know what a pull request is and they know what GitHub is and they mm. know how to merge a pull request and review code and they know what a function is and they write great technical documentation. And similarly, our software developers understand in enormous detail what people do in an epi study or the drugs, medicines and devices, data dictionaries and how they're used in studies. And what that means is that the software developers are a core part of the creative, intellectual, yeah. academic team. They are not a, a service wing mm. to whom instructions are posted through a letterbox. They are uh, an absolutely core part of the everyday business of the, of the group. Yeah. And actually, one of the interesting things about growing fairly quickly. So, you know, I came here um, to Oxford, well... Do you, do you want to know what I did for a living? I mean, is that... Uh... Sure. So I trained in medicine at Oxford and London, then uh, psychiatry at the Maudsley, then in epidemiology, which is basically applied medical stats at London School of Hygiene. Um, and along the way, did a lot of public engagement, like writing books and, mm. and that sort of thing. Uh, came here in 2015 on a grant that paid for really me and one researcher. Mm. And having learnt... I had a code very badly, but knowing your limits is useful. Um, Decided that employing half a software developer would be better than employing one researcher um, for all of the productivity gains you can get from that. And um, we've doubled in size each year, pretty much. It was funnier to say that when there was precisely 32 people in our group. Um, And one of the interesting challenges there is kind of maintaining fidelity to that skills pooling Mm. model. So in the past, it came naturally because four of us, two of us or four of us or eight of us or 16 of us, now we have to actually put a a, a degree more thought into that. And actually, if we carry on doubling, which, you know, we're open to. (laughs) Who knows when that line will fly? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're not territorial, but um, we're here to help. Um, Thinking about how to put systems and structures to, to make that happen and sort of formalizing the onboarding process and formalizing how teams work is actually quite interesting. And it's that embeddedness, you know, that Ben was talking about that Mm. really, I think, separates. When you tell people, and I mean, this is no small feat of getting resource and putting the team together this way, you know, by Ben. Um, But like our software team is like, the model Ben was describing before is very much like like a consultancy model where you bring people in 
they'll create a thing for you and then they'll leave and they'll move on to the next project. We have software engineers as an embedded core team that is like, a, uh, you know, doing the work and embedded within it, but it also is a resource for the rest of the team. Yeah. Or is a colleague rather than a contractor, sure. right? And that's a very different relationship mm. um, how these things work. One of the interesting challenges in this space actually is, well, it's how do you get money for this sort of thing? Because hmm. for the most part, um, money for infrastructure in particular, like Open Safety that we built, for example, mm-hmm. it tends to be through special arrangements and personal relationships, right. for want of a better description. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, there's no open competitive funding stream where I can fill out a form and go, hello, you know, uh, a productive team with a proven track record and a good idea here, mm. <laughs> this is what we'd like to do. Um, and actually, that's a real problem, and it's one of the reasons why I think forward progress in this space of sort of better use of health data in the UK has been uniquely held back strategically, mm. because um, you know one of the things that I think has made British science almost uniquely productive around the world, setting aside the massive benefit of like language, mm. sure, <laughs> sure. Um, is is our Imperfect, but nonetheless, broadly speaking, open and competitive funding system, mm-hmm. right? Right. I, my first research job was in Italy. It was lovely. The funding arrangements in Italy are quite different. You mm. know, il professore, hmm. il grande formaggio, has a dinner, has a handshake. Um, I don't know. Still? I'm probably being very mean. Um, Whereas in England, you know, you have a form that you fill out that goes to a panel and, of course, we're all perpetually enraged by them and they make stupid, perverse decisions and, you know, people grumble about, oh, well, it's who you know and how you frame it and there's secret, tacit knowledge about how to hack each panel that is (laughs) differently available to different people that drives inequalities between demographics and universities and all of that. But a bit like peer review, it's the least awful Mm. approach that anyone's come up to resource allocation in complex technical spaces that where there's sort of niche knowledge to help guide that resource allocation. Uh, for this sort of uh, platform work, um, those norms of open competitive funding have uh, not applied historically in yeah. the UK. Um, so to build this group, I basically had to get research money for single research projects and then legally and ethically redirect it sure. hmm. into um, doing platform work. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's get on to that point about platform work because I think that's a really good overview you both provided of the sort of the mechanism of the institute, how it works, yeah. who, who works on it. I'd love to talk a bit more about really the, the sort of ultimate purpose of, of what you do. Um, clearly health, I think we can all understand that getting health, uh, making health better for people is a pretty direct way to improve quality of life, improve lifespan and things like that. But in terms of the specific platform work you talk about and how you've kind of built the Institute with that in mind, maybe talk about some of the products or projects that you uh, have developed Open Safely being one mm-hmm. and how that kind of maybe sets Bennett apart a little bit in terms of the, the really true output on the ground for people. Sure. Um, well, so Open Safely, I think, is probably the world's largest electronic health records research platform. Mm. It's now delivering a very high volume of completed outputs, research papers and service monitoring um, across 58 million patients' full GP records, Mm. linked onto various other health data sources and research data sources as required. Um, And this is something which 
people have wanted to have yeah. for a yeah. really long time. And for very good reason, because um, it's fairly common for healthcare to be delivered free at point of access and funded by the state in developed countries, mm-hmm. with America as the notable exception. <laughs> um, but it's quite unusual for it to be delivered through one single administrative entity, mm-hmm. like the NHS. So... That means that the GP records of the nation, the structured data, and that's one row of structured data mm. for every single diagnostic event, every prescription, every referral, every blood test and its result, every blood pressure reading and what it was, uh, a phenomenal amount of detail about mm-hmm. each person, plus phenomenal coverage, one record for every patient. Mm. It typically goes back to birth. So it's 73 years of longitudinal data, a bit sparser before the computerisation of general practice, but memorable because they both contain the number 96. 96% of GP's surgeries were fully computerised by 1996. Wow. So that means you've got 27 years of very detailed comprehensive data. Mm. Now, that's a phenomenal resource for pure research, for service monitoring and improvement, and for life sciences innovation. But it presents a number of problems. So the big problem is that data which you want to do good stuff also inherently contains the most private medical secrets of the entire Mm. population of the country. So you have to square the circle. How am I going to get loads of people to access that data to work on it whilst at the same time ensuring that nobody has access (laughs) to that data because it's got to stay really secret? Mm. Um, It also presents additional challenges around kind of curation and efficiency. One of the interesting things that we find, and actually we're thinking about framing some of the work that we already do anyway for external users of the Open Safety Platform as a sort of research study design service. Um, people come in and they go, oh, I really want to get access to the GP data. We've been trying to get access to it forever. And then they get in and they go, hang on, this data is rubbish. <laughs> Where's the variable has asthma? And you sure. go, well... It's your job to make that. Like This isn't research data collected for you. Mm. Yeah. These are doctor's notes. Mm. You are a secondary parasitic user of doctor's notes. This is scrap heap challenge. It's a phenomenal resource, but you didn't pay for it to be collected. And yeah. if you had, I mean, nobody on earth could, have, could afford to pay for this data to yeah. be collected. It would be inconceivable. And if you want to make a variable for child with asthma, well, superficially you might go, okay, I'm going to get... Uh, I'm just going to search everyone's record, binary variable. If you've got any of these SNOMED diagnostic codes for asthma, then I'm going to say, yes, it's a child with asthma. And if you haven't, then zero. It's not Mm -hmm. a child with asthma. But then you find loads of people have got one entry for asthma, but they got blue and brown inhalers once for asthma and then never again. Is that a child with asthma? Mm. So then you start thinking, oh, I'm going to need some rules. It's going to have to be, if you've got any of these diagnostic codes at least once within this date range plus more than three prescriptions for blue and brown inhalers in a one-year window. And then you're going to think, well, God, but asthma might get better. And so then it's, I need a variable for active asthma in each year. And how am I going to make that? So the data also presents a lot of these data curation challenges, which are often hidden. So um, with Open Safely, we wanted to find a way to address that. And... We wanted to do it in an efficient computational platform rather than a hand-holding service. You know, mm. go and talk to Barbara and she'll make <laughs> you a data set from the raw data. We wanted people to self-serve and so on. So the single big clever move 
that we made, from which all other things follow, is we brought a light touch standardization to the data curation process. And this is basically standard Python functions, and it's evolved over time, so now we've got some very elaborate uh, you know, compositional uh, query language um, called Urkel Electronic Health Records mm. Query Language. That we've developed, actually, like, nice. developed from, yeah. from scratch, <laughs> yeah. in-house, in in yeah. Um, in order to have portable representations of those data curation actions and so on. Um, but fundamentally, some light-touch standardization to the data curation, which is the lion's share of the actual elbow grease that goes into producing an output from this data. Um, and when you bring light-touch standardization to that, several very important things become possible. First of all, every new user of the data can see and understand quickly every prior user's data curation acts. They can uh, fork them, they can make their own versions of them, or they can just straight reuse it, or they can throw it in the bin, but they can understand it quickly. That's really critical. And just to be clear, that's because in the past, when people were doing the data curation yeah. thing, it would be, well, well, Barbara will do something called a SQL query, and she'll put a thing in the shared drive, and then usually Tom fixes the dates in Stata, and then you can pull it into Tableau and you can do whatever sure. you want there. And however people achieve the same tasks, they would almost always, different people within a group and different groups within a university and different universities in the world, would all achieve the same data curation tasks in slightly different ways. And if they shared their .sql files or their R files or their Stata do files or whatever you wouldn't be able to understand because they're doing different bits of the job in different places and in different ways. And even if they were all doing it in SQL, SQL is an infinitely flexible mm. language. I mean, you know, you could probably write a novel. In <laughs> so light-touch standardization massively improves productivity and also quality because it's legibility of the data curation acts. Uh, benefit number two is it allows us to do our clever privacy move, which is... Instead of taking the names and addresses off the data and letting people interact mm -hmm. with the raw data, whether it's on a remote desktop in something called a trusted research environment, but still not perfect, mm -hmm. or on their own laptop, that's not good enough for us. It's not good enough to earn support from privacy campaigners, mm -hmm. professional groups, citizen juries. We wanted to go better than that. So what we've built is a framework where users work with randomly generated dummy data to develop their data curation and data analysis and data visualization code. Mm -hmm. They're only ever working with randomly generated dummy data to do that. Mm. But when their code is capable of running to completion, it's getting all the green ticks in GitHub, then they press a big button, <laughs> their data curation and analysis code gets wrapped up inside a container using Docker. Then that gets sent through into the highly secure environment which no researcher ever has to enter. Mm -hmm. It runs against the real data in there, but they don't go, go no. into that environment. Mm. And then the uh, graphs and the tables plop out into the output folder. They get some real human checks, and then they're pushed out for mm. publication in the real world. Which itself, that simulated data step, like that's an undertaking in and of itself. I mean, there was just yeah. a conversation going on in our internal Slack the other day where someone said, like, I'm doing research on vaccine stuff and who got them when and you know the logic by which to build it so to make sure that a one in this column for you know got vaccine always happens after 
some other like got you know before got COVID or mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that sort of logic is a huge undertaking. And I mean, it's something where I think we're constantly striving to to improve and make better. But like, you can't undermine how much that is in itself would be could be an undertake. A research group yeah, would focus yeah. solely on the question of making really good simulated data. Right. Mm. So um, and also building a a framework in which it all works properly. I mean, it's funny now. Now that we've built Open Safely, it's increasingly common to find people, especially people who've had ten times the money and not uh, delivered platforms in the past, <laughs> sometimes say, uh, "Oh, yeah." Uh, so we're going to perhaps uh, we we will also in our trusted research environment uh, deliver an Open Safely like uh, <laughs> working process. <laughs> to which I can only say, "Good luck." Yeah. If you go to github.com slash opensafely hyphen core you will find our entire open source code base and I really recommend you work with us to get it done because it's you know the one of the things that I think is always taking a big idea like open safely and trying to re-implement it yourself I think it's a great thing to see other people do I think it's sometimes a thing that people don't quite recognize and this comes down to the very hard won and carefully built um workforce that we have and the same creative spark and skills and knowledge necessary to have one big ticket clever idea about how to do a thing Mm -hmm. is exactly the same creative spark and skills and knowledge necessary to make thousands of micro choices every year around how to implement it and make it work and that whole layer of data curation and the science of the platform, that being sort of low status and hidden from public view <laughs> in, in work with health data, is incredibly unhealthy mm. and incredibly unique to this space. And it's a function of a lack of understanding and strategic failures, I think, um, at kind of resourcing levels. I think a lot of it comes down to funders. It's very reversible. Um, but anyway, look, there's a longer story perhaps about, about what got us Mm. Anyway, so lastly, (laughs) as well as the big privacy move, there's also really critically the transparency benefits. Mm. So because we know that your code doesn't contain any secrets about people, because it wasn't written interactively with real patients' data, that means it can be shared, and that means that we do share it. In fact, we don't ask people to share it. So there are lots of people now saying, oh, you know, all this stuff in the Goldacre Review and... Oh, you know, a bit like Open Safety, we're really committed to open science, but the way they implement it is at the end of a project, somebody will copy and paste their R scripts into the PDF in an appendix to a published paper or something, yeah. if they want to, and yeah. some of it. Or you get quite interesting sort of rather theatrical use of GitHub. You know, this <laughs> where people go, oh, yeah, we've, everything, all our projects are on GitHub, and you go to GitHub and there's a free text description of the project on GitHub, <laughs> which is not really playing to the strengths <laughs> yeah. of the platform. It's the buzzword of GitHub. Yeah. yeah. Or you get people have copied and pasted their .r or their .sql files, and so it's one static dump, like, like files mm. uploaded on this day, mm. not writing in GitHub with version control and pull requests and reviews and technical documentation alongside and all of that. Anyway, um, code in, Git, in OpenSafely uh, can only run via GitHub. Mm-hmm. So to get your code to run in OpenSafely, your code is literally pulled from GitHub. When you execute your code, you are pointing mm. to a GitHub repository and telling the OpenSafely job server, I want you to run this commit ID 
from this GitHub repository on this open safely back end. Um, so your code by definition is uh, accessible. Um, we have a rolling public log at jobs.opensafely.org, which anyone listening to this can go and look at right now. And there you can see live in front of your eyes what is happening on the servers right now. So mm-hmm. you can see the code that is running on 58 million people's electronic mm-hmm. health records. And if you click through on each project, you'll get through to more detail. You'll get a narrative description like anyone you would hope would happen, information about the person, about the project. If you click through, you'll get to the commit ID of the GitHub repo. Sometimes you'll find that some of those are closed for now because we allow people to keep their code closed if they wish to, up until the point of first results dissemination. So the moment it's in a preprint... For publication. Then it has to go public. Yeah, and also partly because, um, you know, writing a GitHub... Writing a Google Doc, writing a draft in public is weird. (laughs) Um, But... uh, Everything goes public at the point of results dissemination or 12 months after it executes. And that also in itself, well, so firstly, that level of transparency alongside the privacy is the reason why MedConfidential, privacy campaigners, professional groups and citizens juries love Open Safely. Mm. But it also brings, speaking to one of Nick's preoccupations, <laughs> brings in almost reproducibility benefits, yes. right? Yeah, and I mean, like, open code is one of those things, right, where we're not even getting more fundamental than open code might be open data, and we get, we're a long way from that. I mean, study after study comes out showing that that is just abysmal. Sure. Um, and, and and I think Ben and I, I mean, Ben and I have written about this and made the argument that actually maybe the code is more fundamental because you can share that yeah. no matter what. You can share, you, it is the working language that you used to, to get to where you are, yeah. even if your data is the confidential health records of England, you know, your, your, your code can be shared. And I think that, I mean, I think us taking the proactive step is really setting a precedent and example for a lot of other people in, in the space. And I mean, it's not only that, right? It's the code, but it's also the code lists, which we have a whole platform for make, for designing uh, code lists, which help you be like Ben was referencing before, like, oh, how do you say if someone has asthma? It's this collection of diagnostic codes, plus maybe these prescription codes, things like that. Um, you know, that level, it just you just weren't getting that before into similar every research that has been done on similar every databases. Well, and interestingly, sometimes you you started to get things which looked a bit like it. So, for example, people would publish as an appendix their code lists. Mm. Actually, not always. And there are some terrible examples of people who are now starting to talk the talk of open science, but who themselves have been publishing papers during COVID where they say things like, ICD-10 and SNOMED codes available on request. Mm. But actually, even when they publish the code lists... That's often not enough mm-hmm. because you need to know how they were implemented, what date ranges. Not just that, but also um, sometimes even the sort of critical, uh, the statistical analysis that was done, you'll find a really laborious prose description. You know, we did a mixed effects logistic regression using some using organizational ID as an, a variable in the blah, blah, blah. And you think. Christ, I've read this five <laughs> times and still I'm, I'm now absolutely certain it's ambiguous as a description of what you did. And it would have been more parsimonious, it would have been fewer characters mm. if you had just given me the state of command. XTME log it, space, <laughs> I dot, variable, right? Sure. Uh, 
I mean, it, it is mind-boggling, really, that that people don't share their code as a matter of routine. Why is that, do you think? Do you think there's just, like, a lack of, sort of, benefits to doing that in this space? There's just, like, why does open science not actually mean open science? It's partly habit. I mean, mm. I, for a long time, nobody was shouting for it. Mm. Um, I think there are darker reasons, like people don't want to produce... People don't want to give away any more attack vectors... Well, yeah, study. so I, I do think that there's a bit, it, there's the mundane, there's the nefarious, and then there's the Sinister. complex, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, it can range through everything from, I straight up made up these results of so there is no code, right? Which is the rare, I think that is generally the rare, but not as rare as we probably like it to be. There is the, like, um, there's the, like, protective like, I think that this code lets me be productive in ways that other people can't. Mm-hmm. So why would I give that away? But then there's also, like, I think there's sometimes there's shame and embarrassment, right? Like, you know, oh, I might know enough R to scrape together a, a logistic regression uh, or whatever. But my code's a mess. I'm really ashamed of it. I don't comment it or document it well. I don't want other people to see that. I think it's a matter of norms, right? Mm-hmm. It's a matter of just... What are the norms and what are the expectations? I think also sometimes people haven't really acknowledged the extent to which a lot of your decisions, in particular around uh, data management, but also um, particular analyses, uh, can have quite a substantial impact on the results. And so you'll commonly find a prof of epi who's still writing their own data code going, I know a lot about the structure and principles of an analysis but god my state code's really embarrassing and, mm. and and what good would it do to share it like who cares and i think i think i think there's just a lack of insight into as to the benefits of it but there's back to the point that Ben did too where it's also like when we first started this this uh discussion on sharing code is you also have the people who are like you know, there is that scrutiny aspect where mm-hmm. it's like a, there needs to be a threshold effect where if everyone is doing it, then you're expected to do it. But if you're not confident in your results or you don't want to deal with people sniffing through your code, if that other group isn't sharing it, why why do I have to be the one who opens up my work to scrutiny? Even if the end result of that is error correction and like correcting flawed science, which is something we presumptively all want yeah. you know why, why don't we get there and i think that there's also like there's this thing about open code where like it's much like that like you'll hear arguments where people are like oh, i'm gonna go through all this work to make my code look nice and like be documented and have a nice well read we've written editorials going don't bother yeah don't bother <laughs> just, but people will say your, your adequate code is adequate <laughs> but people will say i'm not going to share <laughs> I, I agree with that statement. You can only look at some of my own code on GitHub. Oh, God, so my that, code I, is <laughs> that I abide by that. I've tried to get better, but regardless, um, you know, you know, people will, will will say that I have to do all this extra work, and no one's ever going to look at it because right. there's not a norm to look at it. Yeah. But code is one of those things where when you want to see it, you're really happy to have access to it if you if you need it, right? Yeah. Like it's sort of, and you feel the same way about data, but like we're saying, like code is just more easily shareable, there's more of an infrastructure and there's less concerns. And if it became the norm that it was just always there if you needed it, something's a little fishy here. Did they forget to set that parameter in the, you know, parameters of the logistic regression command that specifies this model correctly? I don't know if they did when they said they did. You know, it'd be nice well, if I could check. And, and at the risk of jumping um, 
too too far from this topic. You know, we do live in a time now of, of great scepticism about mm-hmm. institutions. Which mm-hmm. well, um, so a few thoughts about trust, right? With Open Safely, where the entire code base for the entire platform and every analysis that's ever run in it is in the public domain, mm-hmm. if we were um, if we were just pretending to have done a, a, an analysis, it would be such an elaborate hoax. I mean, it would be more work just building it, right? So you can be absolutely sure yeah. that the work's actually definitely being done for a start. So it is interesting that one has to even think in those terms about that, about that, about any project, right? I mean, there are lots of studies that I see where I think, God, I don't know. I don't know how you do. I don't know how you did that study. I don't know that I believe it. I mean, it's very common in epidemiology to find um, two studies in the same data set, CPRD, on the same overarching clinical question in the same year. And in some ways that's With just different results. Science, right? That's randomness, etc. Well, no, but, it's not but, really. I mean, uh, if you get different answers, you want to understand them. Yeah. I mean, much, a much better example is um, the relationship between ethnicity and COVID outcomes, right? So there were... Sort of Three big studies published on this early in the COVID pandemic, one from Public Health England, one from ONS, and one from Open Safely. They all had slightly different coefficients in a multiply adjusted model for, you know, kitchen sink analyses, and people can get across about the different ways that you might do or frame those. Uh, but fundamentally, three different serious groups, mm-hmm. all running at the same clinical question, slightly different ways, slightly different data sets, and quite different coefficients coming out of the models Mm -hmm. for the marginal additional risk associated with Southeast Asian, Black, British, whatever. Now, in an ideal world, to understand the differences, you would start going, okay, is this differences in the source population, in the data, in the data management, or in the analysis? Mm -hmm. To do that, you'd need to have reasonably comprehensive information about all of that. And that is only available for the Open Safely one. Not for the mm. PhD one, not for the ONS one. You mean you um, have these steps, right? We call them researcher degrees of freedom, which you right. may have heard, right? And it's, each of those is a forking path, yeah. right? And like, there's a whole area of research emerging now around like vibration of effect, where like if you change one thing, how does that, like, you know, within reasonable values that people can assign a thing right. or, or form a variable or whatever, how does that make your effect jump? And does it in fact depending on how you measure this variable or, or combine this variable, does it jump from being a negative finding to a positive sure. finding? And so uh, and related to that, of course, is the phenomenon of p-hacking, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you analyse your data a hundred different ways until you get the result you want uh, because it's the lesson of Guantanamo Bay. If you torture the data hard enough, it will confess to anything, right? Mm-hmm. You've got so many different choices you can make. And the halls of epidemiology research departments around the world echo with these borderline defensible conversations. Well, guys, it's a p-value of 0.06. Martin, hmm. do we really care about p-values 0.05 as a cutoff? <laughs> no, we don't, but we know that people do. Okay, have you thought about reclassifying age in five-year bands instead of quintiles get it over the and then it just slips over the line right and it might not be people trying to get somewhere it might also be people have a sort of deep-rooted expectation 
that there should be or shouldn't be an effect or a relationship mm, sorry, between people exposed to Exactly, yeah. and they're like, oh the no, that thing. can't be right. Yeah. Hang on, why don't... Have you tried using this as... Have you tried using smoking as an interaction term? Mm. Why? Oh, here's a good reason why. Okay, all right, yeah. I'll do that. A general kind of research issue, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then... And that gets into pre-registration and all yeah. sorts of other open science, which... And so pre-registration, yeah, really essay yeah. form is one thing. But in Open Safely... If you ran 10, 20, 50 or 100 different scenarios until you got the answer that you most wanted, you could do that, but you would be doing that rather flamboyantly and unwisely entirely in public. Yeah. Because everybody would be able to see in the logs that you had done that, that you had done 100 different analyses, but that you'd only published one. And the burden on you would be to explain why the 96th one was the, the correct mm. one. Correct. And if somebody came to us and said, I'd like to see the summary results outputs from those, well, we've got some evolving policy documents in that space, yep. right? Now, um, because you can't just publish absolutely every table from every run just because, well, it throws up all kinds of other challenges mm-hmm. um, around output checking, but also around... Small numbers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just that, also kind of public trust. Like if someone's got an interim analysis on a controversial vaccine issue, That's, yeah. and you know some hostile actors are going to go, oh, well, you didn't... And then you're sort of obliging a researcher to spend the whole of the rest of their life in fractal rebuttals of increasingly stupid Which criticism. Which would sound in the gears of, yeah. of, of science. Which would be infeasible. But at the same time, like, I hope... I hope people would think that we, more than most people, are quite feral about reproducible open science. Sure. Anyway, so this feels like the correct trade-off mm-hmm. to us. And actually, it's interesting, uh, people from Pharma have come to us and said, can we do some um, effectiveness and safety studies in open safely? And um, initially, I th- my blood ran cold, and I thought, oh, bloody hell, we're going to say, are we going to have to say no? Or are we... Like, how is this going to... But actually, you know, Open Safety is the perfect place to let a less trusted actor hmm. do their analyses because they're doing so practically with their every move projected onto the building 50 feet tall, yeah. you know. Yeah. So good luck to them if they want to P-hack. But I mean, yeah, and I mean, the trick is, though, too, like, you need that next step. And I mean, we're small enough now that if something like that happens, someone... Would probably notice, but if this is going to scale and keep getting bigger, right? People need to be asking those questions at a fundamental level. Like, you know, it would be great if if open if the open safety model and open safety itself became so well known as a way of working that a reviewer could look at a paper and say, "Oh, I'm going to go check the logs mm-hmm. for that," you mm. know, and then they could say, "Oh, this all looks great," or "Why did you run this 107 times? Yeah, and yeah. you're only reporting the 107th run." That seems fishy. I mean, that's. That the transparency like prevents that stuff, but it prevents it if you can check in. Like I said, I think we're at a level right now where that something like that would probably catch our eye. But maybe one day we'll be so big, or other people will be applying this model elsewhere that aren't us. It would yeah. be great if people were primed to be asking those questions and checking. Well, look, I mean, the reason why we make a lot of the design choices that we make is that we're anticipating scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who knows if it'll come you mm-hmm. know? but we're anticipating scale mm-hmm. and that again is partly a function of working with the people that we do because yeah. you know our developers they're used to working on you know running a, running a bit of an operating system sure. that has 
hundreds of millions of users yeah. around the world, right? Yeah. Or a browser that has, you know... So they're always looking at this stuff going, all right, well, this is fine, but how do we make sure that this is resilient to this, 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 and this, and how does that scale? And I think that the model of, for example, having all the code in public um, in the particular ways that we've done it um, supports, as Nick says, you know, a, an a slightly different ecosystem and discussion space mm-hmm. around epidemiological analysis. Well, I feel, I feel like we've come full circle, actually, by circling back to the people in, in the building. Um, we've taken uh, too much yeah, of the time already. So very conscious that Ben has to go off as well. I'm going to go and be a parent. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. But we were posting this episode, and hopefully people can follow you on Twitter and follow the Bennett Institute on Twitter to find out more about what the Institute is going to be doing, or if you have any other areas or of access you i think you already mentioned the website was that where they could find out a bit more about open tracker open safely if open you safely. want to read about any of this stuff uh go to bennett oxacuk bennett.ox.ac.ac um <laughs> and also if you want to learn about open safely yeah. if you go to opensafely.org then you'll find a link that has a kind of good detailed technical description of how the platform works for privacy and transparency and if you really want to learn how it works, go to docs.opensafely.org, as in documentation. Mm-hmm. And there you will find uh, more than 60,000 words of technical user manual <laughs> because um, that's another one of the ways in which you hack your productivity. Mm. If you really want to be geeky and look at some code, it's jobs and jobs. Jobs.opensafely.org. You can see the code running. And I would love it if we got someone who was like, I did go into that. <laughs> I did check that out. Sure, that would right. be great. I don't, you see, I think I've gone too far down the rabbit hole. I that doesn't sound weird to me at all. <laughs> I'm assuming that we're going to have to cash the pages. And yeah, absolutely. Deal with a massive influx. <laughs> well, thank you so much for both of your times. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing how the Institute can continues to grow maybe exponentially maybe it will flatten slightly in terms of headcount but uh, either way best of luck for the the next years yeah thanks for having us hey thanks for skeptics and we will see you next time cheers